Welcome to Getting Cozy with Erin Hill. Now here's our mama. Hey y'all, welcome back to Getting Cozy with Erin Hill. You guys, there is an Instagram account that I have loved for so long and I am so incredibly excited. I know I always say that, but I am so thrilled, especially this week, and we will get more into that, but to have them with me virtually, I have the one and only Bachelor Clues and Pace Case from Game of Roses podcast, and I am so excited to just chat with them about everything that's been going on this week. It has been historic. So you guys, welcome to Getting Cozy. Thank you for having us, Erin. I feel very cozy already. Oh, good. (laughs) As do I. Thank you very much. Perfect. Okay, so before we get into everything that's happened this week in Bachelor Nation, and boy, is there a lot to talk about. I want you guys to tell our listeners how Game of Roses came to be, how each of your Instagram accounts came to be, because you guys are so unique and different from anything on Instagram, I feel. The way that you look at the show, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about some of the lingo you use. Like, you guys are and I say this in the nicest way possible, but you're a cult. You're literally a cult, but it's such a good thing. Like, I I hope you take that (laughs) in a good way. (laughs) You're a good cult. We're not like those other cults. We're the good ones. You're a good cult. You're a good cult. So I say that in the most positive way possible. So please don't take that any way else other than positive. But yeah, so please just let us know. You guys can jump in and just kind of, you know, let us know how it all kind of began, the origins. Bachelor Clues and I are both TV writers, mostly TV comedy, and we met on a show that he created called Bad Judge, probably about seven or eight years ago, maybe. Gotta be. Um, but that was the first TV show I worked on. I was the writer's assistant, and Chad was an EP, and we... I don't know how we ended up figuring out that we both watched The Bachelor, but we started watching with a couple friends of ours, and it just became our weekly ritual. (laughs) What season did you guys start watching? Maybe 17. Oh, okay. Okay, so more recent. My Bachelor data grid that I always have open. (laughs) I love it. I'm pretty sure it was Sean Lowe. And then as we were watching it, you know, we just began to kind of see through the show. And I think there was in Chris Soul's season when he goes up in a hot air balloon with Britt Nielsen, there is a shot in that season, in that date, that is a low angle up into the basket of the hot air balloon. And you can see grass sticking up from the bottom of the frame. And I remember seeing that and just being like, that hot air balloon is not in the sky, but they're making it seem like it is. Oh, wow. And my mind just started like spinning out of control and i was like i gotta start making memes about this the show is a lie everything they're putting on the screen is a lie that's what i knew to be true that was the first bachelor clue that's how bachelor clues was formed oh my gosh i was like that's a clue yeah (laughs) you know going a little crazy but um i started making memes on my account and lizzie was writing recaps on her website called pop culture sensation and slowly over time the mania just took hold and you know making three memes an episode became compulsively photographing every two or three <laughs> seconds of the tv screen and making like 20 memes per episode face cases recaps went from like a couple of pages to like 50 pages with a hundred thousand memes and we just wow. got sucked down into it and yeah. uh we both basically just became obsessed with the show and studying it and started developing this terminology, which I guess because we have TV backgrounds, we're better able to like recognize these patterns and tropes, etc. And it started coming up with these terms. I feel like PTC was probably one of our first terms, which is what we call personal tragedy card. Basically, we're a player reveals a traumatic story from their past and there's like a lot of different types of ptcs there can be heartbreak like oh i was cheated on or death where they've you know lost somebody in their past etc and we just started to notice how these were such a core part of the show Mm -hmm. and and i honestly think it's even increased like we were seeing especially Tasha's season, we saw more PTCs than I think we've ever seen in a season. Oh, yeah. Every every contestant seemed to have one. 
Yeah, and or multiple, as in the case of Zach Clark. Right. What a life that man has lived. But we just started coming up with more and more terms, and we were like, should we try a podcast? And we just recorded on this little shitty like tape recorder, basically, our first episode. And it's just sort of evolved from there. And now we've been doing it for a year and a half. Roughly. Yeah. And it's grown and grown and grown. And and one of the kind of key components of how we analyze the game, I mean, I truly believe that The Bachelor is the most important piece of media being created in America currently in terms of its reflection of what our society is, which is a surface over substance concerned with social media and parasocial relationships more than anything that's happening in the actual real world. Parasocial relationship is like where you're, you think you're friends with somebody on the internet, basically. They're talking directly to camera, so you feel like they're your friend, but you don't actually have a relationship with them in real IRL, real life. Like in a story or something, like when they're directly talking to the camera? Yeah. Yeah, it, that, it has to do specifically with that. It's a person looking through a camera mm, at you okay. and speaking, and it tricks your brain yeah. on a sub-psychological level. <laughs> you feel like they're talking to you, even though they don't know who you are. So right. in all reality TV now, at least in America but certainly in The Bachelor, a huge component of the show are the ITM interviews where they're interviewing a player and that player is looking right into the camera and talking to us at home. Mm-hmm. And so that's a piece of the show. And then you also carry it through to their social media. So now they have that ability to engage with all viewers of the show parasocially through Instagram stories, reels, TikToks, what have you, and keep building that parasocial audience. So we started recognizing that. That became part of our analysis. But what Pace Case was talking about, these terms we're coming up with, we use them to identify what are repeatable plays in what we see as a professional sport, which it is at this point. It's a 10-round game every season, and if a person is going on there looking for love and they have genuine motivations, it still doesn't matter. To get that ring, to find that relationship, you have to win a 10-round game playing against 30 other players, the producers, the lead themselves, and you have to be playing to the fourth audience, which is us. The four audiences is kind of the one of the fundamental principles of how the game is structured. Every player must be aware of the fact that they are trying to play to the lead. They have to be playing against, in some cases, or with the second audience, which is the other players. And then the third audience is the producers. Obviously, they have their own machinations, and <laughs> they're kind of the game masters, if you will, in a, mm-hmm. an analogy to, like, Hunger Games. They're the ones who are controlling what's happening in the game. Yeah. And then, obviously, there's us. We're at home watching and potentially sending death threats to people if they do something bad in the game or scanning them or whatever. I know. It's so complicated. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's and, and that's why I wanted to have you guys on, because I think people don't understand, like, the depth of the show and what you said, how it does represent where we are, you know, in the world today and in this country. It's just it's crazy. What I love that you guys do, too, is you do a state of the world. And I just I love how you combine The Bachelor with the world in general, you know, just politics and just everything. But it all makes so much sense, you know, when you're when we're listening. Um, if you guys have never heard their podcast, please go listen to Game of Roses. It's just, it's so eye-opening and, you know, you're just, you're so dead on. <laughs> it's just really amazing. <laughs> we try. I mean, sometimes. Thank you for being in our cult. Yes. <laughs> I am in the pit for sure. Really, really, really deep in there. <laughs> I actually started watching from season one. So yeah, in college on my sorority couch, I remember watching Alex. So I've been following this for a very long time. But it's it's just so much fun to connect with people after they go on the show because they're just they're different people from when they came on the show to when they leave. It's it's pretty sad actually on the mental health side of that you know so I'm curious who do you guys think have been the top three players of the game male and female and do you guys agree we debate this a lot on our podcast (laughs) we both both have like one goat player and they're different mine is Caitlin Bristow I think that any top player has to be a woman because this kind of is like a woman's game to be able to be successful, especially in the postseason. She has a successful podcast. She sells scrunchies, just made herself this mainstay in the game, as well as 
by the way, playing a, a flawless season when she was first on, she was able to get the, what we call the crown and be crown bachelorette uh, after only one season, unlike someone else's goat. <laughs> <laughs> I know who your goat is. <laughs> yes, that's true. My greatest of all time is Nick Vial. Yes. He's a 21 bachelor. He <laughs> played in successive back-to-back seasons of Bachelorette. Andy Dorfman and Caitlin Bristow garnering a second place finish in both of these seasons. And in the Caitlin Bristow season, he came in in episode four, crashing the season, becoming an immediate villain. And still, he was able to overcome that to go all the way to second place. Yep. He played a full season of VIP. And then he was crowned what I would argue is one of the most important seasons that's ever existed because it gave us Rachel Lindsay, our first black bachelorette. And that season was shot during the 2016 election. So we have things going on behind the scenes of it that were incredibly interesting. Not only did they give Corinne Olympios a Make America Corinne Again hat uh, and pass (laughs) that out in Women Tell All in the after the final rose, but we know that Rachel Lindsay learned Donald Trump was elected president the moment she landed in Finland and then had to do a fantasy suite with Nick Vial. So knowing that and oh, rewatching wow. that season puts a whole new layer on it. Not that that had anything to do with Nick Vial's play, but yeah, it has nothing to do with We have something called the RQ, the Rose Quotient, which is basically something that we have devised to determine how good a player is at getting roses that are outside of a rose ceremony. Group date, a rose on a one-on-one date, we call those zero point roses because they are very difficult to get and they often are linked with with success in the game whether becoming a ring winner or the crown and caitlin bristow had one of the lowest rqs of all time <laughs> she got a ton of group date roses <laughs> she has the lowest rq 0.74 a the zero rq is the heart like that's a perfect season basically it would mean you would have to get a first impression rose then you would have to get either a one-on-one or a group date rose all through the rest of the season basically and wow. somehow get a specialty rose when it gets down to like fantasy suites and stuff where they don't give roses usually outside of the rose ceremony in mm-hmm. certain special geared cases they do so it's virtually yeah. impossible to do and she walked away with a 0.74 so uh very, very high level play. I'm not knocking her, by the way. I'm just saying, <laughs> to me, Nick Vial's a little better. He has more total roses, most total screen time, all that kind of stuff. But I would also throw into this argument a player named Mary Delgado, who a lot of people don't remember. She mm-hmm. made her first appearance in season four, the beginning of the experimental era, with Bob Guinea, who was the first Bachelor cast as a player in a prior season of Bachelorette. That was the first time it happened. Came into that season, made it all the way to third place. And then she returned in season six for a second tour, just like Nick Vial did. And she won the ring that season from Bachelor Byron Velvic. And she also created the Huju, the first one ever performed <laughs> in that season six. Oh, I remember her. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually, looking back. Oh, my gosh. She was also one of the like oldest players at the time. She was in her late 30s. And... Also a player of color who made it to fantasy suites, which, you know, was extremely rare. I am always thrilled to hear when anyone over the age of 30 goes any any further from, you know, than like fifth or sixth, right? I mean, it's like, I'm so yep. sick of seeing all these 20-year-olds on the show. I don't know if you guys have watched any of my Rose Rewind recap. I'm always saying like, 20-year-olds have no business being on this show. Like 25 and under... <laughs> What the hell are you doing? Like, you need to be going out there. You need to be, you know, dating 30 guys, not one of 30 women dating a guy, you know? It just makes me so mad. And I think it's because I'm a dating coach, too. And so it just, you know, it goes against everything I believe. No, in your 20s, you do not settle down. You just don't. (laughs) Yeah, when when is the ideal age to settle down? (laughs) I mean... After 27, I think because you've got your frontal lobe is, you know, completely developed and you can make really (laughs) important decisions. But at 22 or like 21, no, no business, no business being on that show at all. I get very upset. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know if you know, 
nobody goes on the show to settle down. I know. This is true. You're right. Hey, <laughs> okay. I mean, Sean and Catherine are still together. That's true. <laughs> there is one example. There's your one. There's your one. one. I would also say, by the way, in the current era that we're in, although we feel that season 25 has brought us into a new era that we're dubbing the professional era, the era prior to that, which is season 18 through 24, we have called the paradise era because going to paradise becomes a, another goal within the game. Right. And in that era, you had in Pilot Pete's season, PP's season, Madison Pruitt and Hannah Sluss were high, high level players. I don't know if we would say they are maybe the greatest ever, but what Hannah Sluss was able to do on her night one with a multi-steal, first impression rose, first kiss, and then carry that all the way through to a ring win at the end of that season, I would put that up there in maybe my top five kind of like just almost a perfect season that she played. And Madison Pruitt was right there with her all through that season. Yeah. The other person I would throw into the conversation would be Rachel Lindsay, the first Black Bachelorette, has multiple successful Bachelor podcasts. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the way, we are obsessed with higher learning. Like, we love that podcast. And also, perhaps being the one player to take down Chris Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we will get into that for sure. Um, We have to, absolutely. But I have to say, I have met Nick Vial in person. And he is very charming, very tall. I'm not surprised that he did so well with the ladies because, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> big fan, big fan for sure. Um, but that was, a, that was a highlight, let me just say. That was, that was a highlight. <laughs> oh, my God, you're trailing off there. <laughs> I understand. He also met Nick in, in real life. And I, I had the same, uh, same reaction. Oh, you did. Okay, good. So you know where I'm coming from, then. Yes, yes, oh my yes. <laughs> yep, he had some painted on jeans that day. I was actually at Ashley and Jared's wedding shower in LA at the iHeartRadio studios, and it was, it was so much fun. Oh my god! Yes, yes. I that's where I met Ben Higgins, and um, oh my gosh, there were so many people there. Um, Kendall was there. Joe was not. Kendall was there. Carly and Evan. It was basically like all the couples that have broken up were there, but Carly and Evan. They were very standoffish, very odd couple. I felt not very friendly at all. I don't know if you guys have met them in person, but interesting. Yeah, odd pairing there. And Chris and Crystal, who also have broken up, they were lovely. They were really, especially Crystal. She was such a sweetheart and absolutely gorgeous. So anyway, that was a lot of fun, just being able to meet all of them in that one setting. Who would you say are the best players of all time? Oh, I would definitely agree with Nick for sure. Yeah, Caitlin, Caitlin post-show is, un, I feel like, untouchable. I mean, Nick is up there. Like, his podcast is very popular. And he did Dancing with the Stars. You know, he did pretty well there. But Caitlin won Dancing with the Stars. She has one of the biggest podcasts. You know, Off the Vine is freaking huge. And it's not a Bachelor-centric podcast. She's talking to A-list celebrities. So I feel like, and so is Nick. So is Nick, you know. But I don't know. I I feel like head-to-head, like, yeah, I think Caitlin's a little bit above Nick, honestly. I agree with you. you. Post gameplay, Caitlin (laughs) destroys everybody. Not only was she dancing with the stars, not only does she have a podcast and scrunchies and wines, she has (laughs) a couple singles that were like charting in the top 10 on iTunes. She has a legit singing career going on too. Right. I don't think you can even touch what she has done post game. I think Rachel Lindsay is coming close. That's true. And if she winds up becoming the host of The Fucking Bachelor, like, that's it. Oh my God. Wouldn't that be amazing? I noticed her Instagram. She's back up in the 900,000 range this week. Maybe she will hit a million threshold. She should have been there and then over that. I mean, considering who has more followers than her, it it doesn't make sense. Like, she should definitely be in the million, in the millions, you know. But, I mean, Ben Higgins, I feel like Ben Higgins has always set the bar for one of the best bachelors we ever had. And he has a best-selling book now, which is incredible. I don't know if you guys have read Alone in Plain Sight. It's amazing. He's done Yes, it's incredible. Honestly, it brought stuff out of my past that I have, like, not even dealt with. 
And so for me, it was very cathartic to read that. So I was helping him promote the book. So that's why I read it. I was blown away. Absolutely blown away. It was a great read. Mike Johnson's book too, Make the Love You Want. Incredible, incredible book. Really, really great book. He's amazing, complete doll. And he's done well too, post-show, really well. So, you know, yeah, they, these guys are, they're they are killing it. I mean, I really am loving meeting uh, Tasha and Claire's guys. I think a lot of them are incredible men, like really, really good guys. So, you know, I think there's a lot of people in Bastion Nation right now that are doing really great things with their platforms. Totally. I always just say bye, Al, and get it to Mary Delgado and stuff, because for me, I really look at the sport of it, yeah. which is what did they do on their seasons of Bachelor and Bachelorette, and then anything sure. they do in their their post-game career is, to me, a whole other game, because now we're getting to social media and all that kind of stuff, and I have to agree with Pace Case that Caitlin Bristow is just untouchable in yeah. her post-game career. I mean, in terms of activism, though, I, like, Taylor Nolan and Ashley Spivey are the gold standard for me. Like, yes. the work that they're doing on Instagram is fucking incredible. Let me switch gears a little bit. So what was kind of one of the more shocking revelations that you guys have found over the years? Like, if you had to say, like, maybe a couple. Besides the the first one that you mentioned with the grass, you know, seeing, the, seeing that the hot air balloon was not in the air, it was on the ground. Stuff like that, like, just, like, just blowing the top off the show. Like, what the hell is going on? There is a stat that Bachelor Clues discovered recently, which blew my mind, which was... We talk about the first impression rose and we're like, oh, first impression rose statistically means you have like a 50-50 chance of making it to final four, etc. People are like, that's such a huge get. But something that we realized was that actually the person who gets the first flower at the first rose ceremony statistically goes further on average than the person who gets the first impression rose. Hmm. And I was like, that no one is talking about first flower but first flower is where it's at first flower also has more crown winners more ring winners there's a whole bunch of statistics that go along with it that make it a more valuable rose to get than the first impression yeah that makes sense i mean i always wonder if they kind of mix it up to kind of keep us on our toes but if there's stats there to back that up then yeah that's that's crazy it mixed it up though that's part of the game to us like playing a good third audience game means that if you're a solid player, you can kind of manipulate the producers into giving you more screen time, giving you a good edit. You are constantly playing a game against them while you are in the game as well. But it can't be necessarily fully adversarial or they will tank you. They will give you a villain edit and send you home. So you have to kind of like play nice and pretend to be their friends through the entire process. And some players are adept at that. Right. For a special project that Luz and I are working on, we did a a power binge where we watched every season season one through 24 on two times speed over the course of two months maybe oh my gosh uh, it was our entire lives and there were some really insane takeaways that we took away from it i like one of them for me was i assumed that there was sexism and homophobia racism etc especially in the early seasons but if you go back oh my god i mean especially like season one, they have like on-camera discussions of women's um, boob jobs. That's like a huge thing. There's all these slow motion pan shots of women's boobs. And there's also a couple seasons that are entirely white casts. And it's, it's very jarring to watch through, I don't even want to say the lens of. Oh God. You're going to trigger, you're going to trigger us. Oh my. <laughs> I have new triggering, triggering words now, but yes. a lot of really fascinating stuff that came out of just watching it over and over again. If you had to go back over every single season that we've had, what was each of your favorite seasons? Ooh. I mean, I think probably my favorite season was Nick Vile. I mean, by the way, this is just Bachelor. We haven't done Bachelorette yet. But probably Nick Vial season. My favorite Bachelor was Charlie O'Connell, season seven. He was just kind of a wild card. And that season was during the experimental era when they were really messing with the game format a lot. 
And he had an adversarial relationship with Chris Harrison, which I found to be interesting. <laughs> I, for me, I don't know. I really like season 21 a lot. Nick Vial, obviously, is super entertaining because he was such a high-level player to watch him as the crown in that season, have to then preside over 30 players, knowing himself that he understands the game better than any of them. You can kind of see that there is a sadness in his eyes in that season that he doesn't get to play anymore, that he's ascended to this high honor of being the crown, but he would rather be playing. And I think that subtext to that season makes it a very interesting one to watch. But I also really like season 24 because, again, of all of the high-level play we're seeing in that, not just Madison Pruitt and Hannah Celeste. If you look at Kelsey Weir's Hoojus that season, they are Olympic-level <laughs> athleticism. They're incredible. I've never seen anything like it. There have been other players who were good at Hoojus. Don't get me wrong. Hers that season are just like in another universe. She's so good at it. And obviously there was a lot of producer manipulation that season at a level we had never seen, like what they did to Victoria Fuller with Chase Rice bringing back someone she had had a relationship with to perform the concert that was going to be happen on her one-on-one -on -one day is just Machiavellian manipulation by the producers. Oh, and yeah. we're seeing now that that bar has been even raised again in season 25 with what I believe is purposeful casting of Rachel Kirkconnell to bring racism into the story. Obviously what they did by bringing in the new players so that we had two groups forming and then to keep stoking that again and again and again and again uh, choosing to include the sex worker rumor about Brittany. I mean, that was a producer choice to put it in the show. Mm -hmm. All of this is, to me, like we are in a new era now where the producers have wholesale control over every situation that's happening. And the players also are very astute. Almost everybody this season is pro-level. They know what they're doing. Right. My yeah. favorite part of the season was Sweet Bums. Sweet Bums on, on PP season was great. Yeah. Best parent play we've ever seen. Oh, for sure. And I will say, you know, I think the the editing is just, it's infuriating sometimes, you know, and I'm sure for the contestants, I know for the contestants for sure. But so looking back at the previous seasons, was it obvious that production was messing with the show back then? Or is it just more obvious now? Well, I mean, this is what was interesting. To me, my biggest takeaway from our hyper binge was everything we learned in the experimental era, which was seasons four through 12. This era included the invention of the first impression rose, the invention of a one-on-one -on -one rose, a group mm. date rose, the two-on-one. All of these things that are kind of mainstays in the game now did not exist in season one through three. Nice. They started to creep in in season four. And finally, by season 12, it was kind of solidified. And then you had season 13, Jason Mesnick, where you now have two-hour episodes, and all of the main components of the game are there, although it would take until season 16 for us to see all eight limo exit types. But the structure of the game was solidified by season 13. So in that season 4 through 12, you really start to see the producers doing high-level manipulations and seeing what they can get away with. The women Sorry. have to vote for their least favorite. They have the seasons taking place in different cities around the world. They had two bachelors in season six. By the way, you know, the original game, season one, they don't have as many producer machinations. You have group dates that are split entirely even, where there's five people on each group date and everybody gets the exact same amount of time. No mm. players don't get a date every week, which just makes them more stressed out, etc. And there's no roses on the dates, which make players less competitive on dates as well. In that experimental era, you really get to see one of the, the most interesting things about it was the evolution of the first impression rose. The first one that was ever played in the game was given to season five bachelor Jesse Palmer, who was an NFL quarterback, GLH, Dark Lord Harrison, Chris Harrison, sorry. <laughs> I know our terminology is like crazy, but he just hands it to Jesse Palmer in front of the mansion after he meets everybody after the limo exits. He's like, here's a first impression rose. You give this to the yes. player, the woman who uh, made a great impression on you, she'll stick around. Yes. He tucks it into the waistband of his suit and walks <laughs> in. And he's just got it like hidden in his jacket. That's the first first impression rose. Wow. And over the course of these next eight seasons or whatever, you see now a caterer hands it out to somebody. Now somebody brings it on a little tray, but it's not sitting on a common table until finally in season 12, you have Chris Harrison bringing it in on a little platter, 
sitting it on a table and everybody knows what it is already. And as soon as it hits the table, you can just see the anxiety shoot up in that room. So by season 12, the producers finally realized like what the best use of it was in terms of forcing people closer to a nervous breakdown. That is absolutely <laughs> fascinating. And I, I think you guys will agree too that the whole purpose is to really just get these people unhinged in any way possible, right? I mean, they want people to be just completely on the edge of their sanity. Yeah, you want the stuff that's shown in the promos, which is emotional breakdowns, raising of love levels, playing of PTCs. Right. I mean, that's the, the true lie of the show is that it is really about helping anyone find love how they promote the show. Like another thing that we learned in the Hyperbinge is you see the little bumpers between the commercial segments. That's always Chris Harrison saying something. 90% of those, the dialogue was something like, and tune back in to see who gets destroyed. See who finds love and see who will never find love again. <laughs> they'll really, lose their chance at love with a doctor forever. Right. They're really selling the misery and the suffering of these players. It's mm. like the love story is this kind of overarching lie that's like, that's what the show's about, but it isn't. The producer's main goal is to drive people to cry, to tears. We've heard now, I don't know how many players have come out and said, like, they drove me around in a limo for four hours and showed me sad videos on YouTube until I cried, and they wouldn't let me out of the car until I gave them that. Oh We've my had God. so many players talking about you know, the deals they have to cut with producers for extra sleep if they'll just say the right phrases in their ITM interviews. All of this is manipulated, and the producer's only goal is to drive somebody to a nervous breakdown as many times as they can. Jesus. How do you explain then when people come off the show and they say they're friends with producers? How could you be friends with your producers after they put you through that? Is it just one of those like traumatic things that you're just, you have that bond with them, but it's not like it's toxic, like it's not a healthy bond? Yeah, I think it's a Stockholm syndrome thing. Oh my you don't God. Have, if I go for like 20 minutes without my phone, I'm like getting antsy. Imagine going months. You can't even talk to other people. You only have the producers and the other players. I was just going to say that I also think some of the players understand that that's a part of the game. And so it doesn't really get to them. It's like they get it. I mean, Nick Viles says this constantly, but they are producing a show. Like he always says that. And that's code for, I get that I'm going to have to, they're going to like throw curveballs at me and have an ex-girlfriend show up and whatever the, the thing may be. Like he understood that that was a part of the game. Mm -hmm. And I think for players who understand that, it's like, well, that's the producer's job and I can be okay with that. And we can be kind of friendly, especially for, for players who come out of the game with big Instagram followings that are now influencers. They've gotten something out of the game. So to talk bad or have a bad attitude about the producers is a little contrary to their existence, really. I mean, like Nick Viaf, for example, if he started talking bad about the producers at this point, does his podcast go away? He certainly doesn't get episodes early to review them, you know? <laughs> exactly. No, that's a really good point. A really good point. Definitely. Sheesh. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's insanity. We're all just, you know, enablers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I will give a caveat here. We are seeing real relationships. We're not saying that people don't fall in love on this show. Like, we do believe that real emotional bonds form, that it is possible. But I do think Absolutely. that paradise, you know, paradise is definitely a better place it's more conducive for the relationships to form right because they have much more access to each other they can get to know each other they have more time with each other that kind of thing but you know you talk to leads and they say well i was with this person for what i think nick said like 48 hours or something in total yeah. before he got engaged to vanessa so you know yeah right the structure and the context of paradise too that game is a different game Everyone who is on Paradise has already gone through the main game once. They kind of understand what they're in for in terms of producer manipulation. That's but true. also there's not the ring or the crown. Right. No one on sand is being like, I have to fucking beat everybody here to get the ring. Or maybe I'll be the next Bachelor or Bachelorette. No one's thinking that. Right. They are all thinking like, this might be my last chance to get a huge Instagram bump. And so I'm just going to have fun. And so I think because the pressure is taken off. And also, again, the structure of that game is like, you're really just at that point making it week to week. You're not laying long-term plans usually. You're just like, who's going to give me a rose this week? I think we're going to see more and more couples devise storylines before touching sand. And 
because that's what I would do. I would secure a couple with somebody and then I would be like, so I'm going to go on other dates to sort of make this our will they, won't they storyline and mm-hmm. then we're going to together in the end. Oh, I'm sure totally. they do that a lot. Yeah. For what it's worth, I think Pilot Pete and Kelly Flanagan, you know, we've all read the articles about how they're working things out in their relationship and all that. A fantastic move for them would be to both go on Paradise and right before our eyes in the course of that game repair their relationship walk away from it with an engagement they would both have two million plus instagram followers you're not wrong (laughs) (laughs) you are not wrong i cannot wait for them to announce who's going to be going to the sand as you guys say i love that so one quick question before we get into this whole uh shit show that just happened (laughs) what did you guys think of listen to your heart what do you think they were trying to do with that and do you think there'll be a season two i mean i feel like they were trying to sort of do a half bachelor half you know one of these music shows american idol etc i really feel like they should have gotten more old players to come in Mm. But that's like something that they suffered from a lot was that it was completely new faces. Right. Really enjoyed the show. Like I would definitely watch a season two. But yeah, it was pretty funny to watch because it didn't seem like they had figured out the structure and they were just <laughs> winging it. They had two different games going on and they were, unfortunately, the objectives of those games were almost in direct contrast to one another. So it didn't <laughs> right. work out. They had the, you have to be a good singer. But also, you have to somehow convey on stage that you're a real couple. And it was just, it obviously did not work. They should have just made it a music competition that also forced these people to go on dates and create songs together. The music competition should have been the only thing we were watching. And then, by the way, they're all also dating. To try and force both of those things together made almost no sense. Will we see another season of it? I don't believe so because the ratings for that show were not good so bad yeah the ratings were terrible well i have to say i mean after i've talked to many of the contestants they were saying that you know music wasn't even brought up until like week two or something like that like they were literally like are we gonna do anything musically here (laughs) (laughs) they were so confused it was a fantastic kind of kernel of an idea i think you could do any kind of like bachelor style sport and lay on any other thing Mm-hmm. Music, art, sports, whatever you want. But you have to be true to whatever the construct of the game is. And if it's like, who's the best musician? That has to be the competition. And the dating has to be kind of like a secondary Second. component of it. It was only a six-week show. So there wasn't even enough time. Yeah. You know, I mean, they should have had at least as long as a regular Bachelor Bachelorette season. Paradise, at least. So that was very odd to me. But just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. Let's get into what happened on the ET interview with Chris Harrison and Rachel Lindsay. I have many thoughts. I want to hear what you guys think and what this means for the franchise. Just give it to me. (laughs) (laughs) What does it mean for the franchise? I watched that interview yesterday morning when I woke up and I was absolutely horrified and I was like, he needs to be fired that and I like I see how people have different takes but I'm I'm surprised by them because it was just completely gaslighting mm-hmm. enabling racism he didn't denounce anything Rachel Kirkconnell did the entire interview yeah. it was awful that she was the victim and sort of ignoring Rachel Lindsay trying to speak on her experience and what she thought about it it was truly like awful to watch and like we had hints that like these were his views beforehand but just to watch it play out in this 13 minutes of this was just it was it was hard to watch yeah the biggest kind of takeaway for me was that you know we saw something like this happen in season 13 of bachelor at rachel Lindsay. they cast a man named lee garrett who had openly racist tweets and instagram posts and stuff like that it wasn't Mm -hmm. even that he was liking racist posts he was literally tweeting racist stuff and their excuse for that when they forced him to kind of have this come to Jesus moment on the women tell all and him and Kenny King ended up hugging and it was like the bachelor solving racism. The show's excuse for that was that they just didn't know. And now all this came out and we had no way of knowing. So let's say that that excuse was true. You can use it once. Now 
we come to another season, the first Black Bachelor, just like Rachel Lindsay was the first Black Bachelorette. And we have something very similar, in many ways worse, because we now have photographic evidence of Rachel Kirkconnell participating in an extremely racist event that took place not that long ago. And we have to ask this question, are the producers doing this on purpose? Because it really seems like they are, that they want racism to be a part of the show, to mm. be a narrative that they can use. And unfortunately, it seems like Rachel Kirkconnell has won the show. So now they're put in the awkward position of defending her. Mm-hmm. They can't throw her totally under the bus. And in that interview, Chris Harrison is you know, trying to do his best to defend her and saying, well, we have to wait until she speaks. But we know the show controls when she speaks as well. Right. So they're kind of throwing her under the bus and saying this is on her. Meanwhile, they are silencing her until she can release whatever kind of statement they can approve in whatever time frame they want. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, whether it was through negligence or they purposely put her on the show, knowing that she had these views and these photos and all this, at this point, don't all the producers have to now be fired? It's not just Chris Harrison. It's the entire show that has generated the situation. And yes, he went on this interview with Rachel Lindsay and he said this horrible shit. And I'm not saying he's not accountable for this. Certainly he is. And I don't think he should be the host of the show anymore. Mm-hmm. If ABC and NZK Productions really wants to send the message that they're serious about diversity, like you can't have that guy as the face of your show anymore, unfortunately. Right. He's been there for you know 18 years or whatever. And that's done now. You got to turn a corner. But it's more than that. It's like how anyone who's not white is represented on this show, how much screen time they're getting, even in like what their Instagram followers are and stuff, which isn't on the show totally, but there's so many levels to this. And it was just like, it felt like a huge domino was being pushed over with that interview. And Lizzie and I were talking about this this morning. I woke up like happy in a way that I haven't been in a long time because Chris Harrison has been like the icon of our podcast since its inception and Mm -hmm. my media family. And we changed that. Like his image was a, a part of it, you know, kind of in a in a satiric attempt to paint him as this demonic figure who does represent all of these things willfully and happily. You know, misogyny, racism, all the things that are baked into the show that have been there since the first season. And I truly felt like in that interview, it was like, oh, shit, <laughs> this might actually change now. Like yeah. he gets removed. I think probably what will happen is they will ignore, ignore, ignore. And then after the end of the season, Chris Harrison will, in quotes, retire. I don't think it's going to be like a a reprimand-type firing. But I do feel like this moment, as terrible as it is to see, I think good change is going to come out of it. Wow. So you guys do think that he'll retire this year? After this season, yeah. It's just getting bigger. Like, only a few players had spoken out yesterday, but now I'm seeing more and more today. Oh, yeah. It was just so egregious, and I don't know how... You could keep him. Katie Emo. Yeah, she said that she will no longer be affiliated with the franchise. And I think that's going to come from more and more people. And I am sad to see her go, but I I can't blame her, you know? No. They tortured her. Right. I I 100% believe that the Chris Harrison we saw in this interview is exactly who he is. I think the real Chris Harrison is worse than the one we saw in that interview. Because this guy has 18 years of being a host of this show, doing these kind of press things almost constantly, never had a slip up. And I don't know if it's because of the pandemic, the lockdown, the show not being shot in a normal thing. He's got this attitude in this thing where, like, he can't hold it back anymore. Right. And he knows that he has to. Like, he's on his best behavior in that interview and that's what he said (laughs) like what he's saying behind closed doors i think is way worse and you know it's just it's so hard to speak on because this is this is probably the most important thing that's ever happened on the franchise i mean do you guys agree like i feel like i can't think of anything else that could rock the franchise more than this no Totally. He's been the face of the show since 2002. And it's like, I don't think it is a coincidence that this is happening with the first Black Bachelor. Mm. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, how this show is related to politics and American culture and stuff on our podcast. And it's like, there's something in this, in the zeitgeist of it, that is like almost how Donald Trump was in some ways a reaction to Barack Obama. It's like what he's doing here is that same attitude. It feels like that, you know, it's like it's a bad, dark fucking thing. 
Yeah, Black Lives Matter defines white lash as like rage and violence that follows a lot of social justice. And I feel like we saw some of the rage in this interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was under the surface, but no, it was there. It was definitely present. It just it's it'll be an interesting moment for the show. It's like they're saying that they're trying to do more diversity. We're we're listening. We're learning, et cetera. Are they going to put their money where their mouth is? Are they going to? I mean, this would be a huge change for them and like in some ways a risk. Who would they even replace him with? Like we we think it should be Rachel Lindsay, but like will they just be like, Oh, it's uh, Ben Higgins or And how are they gonna address this for the rest of the season? They still have half a season to show us that has him in every fucking episode. I know. He hosted a women tell all where this was not addressed. Are they gonna make him come out with like an on camera apology? Probably not. That's why I think yeah. They're going to blaze through the rest of the season. He will retire, and then they move on with whoever the new host is. I don't. Some people think this is like the end of the franchise. I don't think that's true, because again, I view this as a professional sport. I mean, it is. I don't. It's not even that I view it that way. Like it statistically is at this point, and he's just part of the packaging. He's like the commissioner of the NFL or something. You know, if the commissioner of the NFL were to say some horribly racist shit on ESPN. They would just remove him, put in a new commissioner, and the NFL would go on. Right. And I feel like that's what's going to happen here as well. Chris that's Harrison true. is just the packaging of the game we're watching, but the game will be played once again. I mean, I saw somebody pointing out on Twitter, they were like, I, I guess there's a bunch of stuff about Rachel Kirkhoffel's parents coming out being racist. Yes. And we are going to see Matt James sit down with racist parents on a hometown. Like, right. What is that going to be like? We are just assuming that Rachel Kirkconnell is the ring winner because of how they have treated this and also her Instagram gains. But he said that she's not at Women's Hall All, so that means she's a finalist at least. I was just going to say that. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. So, yeah, we know she's top two or top three. So then she would have to have him come to her hometown, the most racist city in all of Georgia. And so that is something, too, that, like, even the... Even if the producers are like, we didn't know. We didn't know about this. Well, you knew where she was from, There's though. no you way. You that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way. You didn't dig any further? You weren't like, well, she's from a <laughs> sundown town. Maybe we should at least check into her, her backstory. That's what I'm saying. Like, they knew. They did this on purpose, and it, I think, fucking blew up in their face. I don't know. I err more on the side of ineptitude, but. <laughs> oh, my God. But, like, ineptitude every time. Like, right. there's always something like this every season, not something specifically racist, but there's always, like, somebody who slipped through the cracks that was, like, fucking Lincoln. Do you remember him? I mean, Victoria Fuller was posing in White Lives Matter gear in her tagged photos. Like, that's where it originally was on Instagram. She hadn't removed the tag. I mean, what about Victoria Larson being, you know, this very outspoken Trump supporter, but also with the mugshot? Like, how did you not know that? I mean, they had Chris Souls as the as the lead, right? And he had had mugshots before. Oh, I thought that was after his season. Was that before? I think he had had something before, and that's the reason they couldn't travel outside the country. Okay, well, but Mike Johnson can't be the but Mike Johnson can't be the Bachelor. Like, are you kidding me? Okay. <laughs> started on mike johnson oh my god but, but i mean but that has to do again with that third audience game mike johnson's third audience game the game to the producers is not good it, it's adversarial those producers are only going to cast people in lead roles that they know they can manipulate who will play ball who will play the game like nick vial who will only ever be complimentary and be understanding like well they are making a tv show and mike johnson ain't that guy that dude's real you know if you yeah. cast a bachelor He's not going to play your games. He's going to do that show the way he wants to do it. And the producers will never accept that. A company man. (laughs) Then how would they ever consider, and I don't know if this was just a rumor, but how would they ever consider Kelly Flanagan when she was very adversarial towards the producers? Or, you know, they, they did not care for her. And she's definitely not manipulative. You cannot manipulate that girl. No, we saw it in the show. I agree. She had a poor third audience game as well. We saw her try to do a couple of hoojus that was like, clearly the producers forced her to do it. And there was just no enthusiasm. She thought it was stupid. <laughs> like she was even on camera saying, I don't want to be dressed up in lingerie doing this. I'm a lawyer, you know, right. all that kind of stuff. 
Right. And I don't think they were seriously considering her for that reason. Okay. Interesting. Do you mean considering her for a bachelorette? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would be very surprised. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought too. So the fundamental thing about the show that really bothers me is that they reward drama in the house. You know, so this is why you're seeing the out of control chaos and conflict and all of that, because the girls know that if they cause drama, they're going to be getting more airtime. And that it just it doesn't sit well with me. I do not like that about the show. I know. If it's all positive, good vibe, love stories, I don't know. I mean, I would, but. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you would. No. No, because there are pieces of it that are, like, part of the game now, like steals, especially on night one, but at cocktail parties and after parties as well. Steals are a huge piece of the game, and we do watch to see who can do a successful steal, who can block a steal, all those kinds of things, who's going to win the group date rows, which requires, like, on Kelly Flanagan's group date, by the way, when they did that obstacle course, and she cheated by riding her tricycle through the cone, (laughs) that was one of the greatest plays I've ever seen, and it pissed everybody off, and she was like, fuck you, I got the rows, and I'm going up in a plane with Pilot Pete. (laughs) Yeah. is fantastic, and that did create drama, but it was, like, such a high-level play. It was brilliant. Yeah. I loved it. I don't know. Steals annoy me. I don't like when people steal. Like, I want to hear the conversation, but I'm I'm different. I'm a different type of watcher. I feel like I'm a different type of viewer <laughs> than most. So, I mean, and I'm just a, a romantic, so maybe that's why. But do you think that the show will actually start making changes? Like, are we going to have, you know, POC producers? Are we going to have more POC leads? I mean, now they're talking about Katie being the lead, another white girl. Granted, I love her. I think she's amazing. Sex positive. You know, she's outspoken. She's strong. I love it all. But she's still white. Presumably, they've only been making changes that are above the line that are like the cast. Right. And we have any like accountability in terms of producers. And like, that's the thing. Like, we're not getting these great stories out of the black players. And part of that is that you don't have black producers, mm-hmm. you know, if you have one and they're not going to be able to like tell those stories as well. I really wish that. And I mean, that was in the batch diversity demands is like, mm-hmm. show us some accountability for what you're doing to make sure that your staff is diverse. I feel like it's like every other professional sport in America has gone through this exact same kind of change where it's all white players, all white owners, all white people who are presenting the media surrounding that sport. And then eventually there's your first black player and that turns into your first black manager, your first black owner, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we're starting to see that change happening in the bachelor now too, which I know it seems like, you know, 18 years and 25 seasons, a long time, but in comparison to other professional sports, it's actually happening very quickly. And I don't know, every time one of these things happens, I know it's shitty. I know Chris Harrison is like horribly racist in this thing. But again, I think good will come from it. I think things like this need to happen where they blow up and there's like an online petition for now like 25,000 people have signed this thing, remove Chris Harrison from The Bachelor. That's good, you know, Bachelor Diversity happened. that got Matt James in that lead role. The first time we saw a black bachelor was because of online activism. And I think in this era, especially as tied to social media as The Bachelor is, I think we're going to see it more and more. And I think these changes will be not just in cast, not just these kind of surface level changes, but I think the producers will have to change as well. I I really think this is like the threshold of a brand new version of this show that is far more inclusive. I think that's right around the corner. And to your point about Katie Thurston, I don't know if the ink is dry on her contract yet, but Mm -hmm. that could always be revoked. She posted a story about how she does not support, you know, what Chris Harrison said. That cannot sit well with the show if she is the next lead. Keenan was very early on it. And when I saw Kit Keenan posting, I was like, oh, you've lost the youth. (laughs) He's done. done. (laughs) I was like, oh, Kit gets kicked off the show next week. (laughs) Right? So true. She got nothing to lose. Okay, this is what Katie wrote. She wrote, yesterday was a disappointing day. A special shout out to the Black Lorettes, which I love that account, by the way, for their educational video. That video was incredible. Every word. I hung on every word. I spent the day listening, learning, and reflecting. I cannot rely on BIPOC to make corrections when something is wrong. 
I must take my own initiative to continue to learn how to be anti-racist and an ally. More than words are needed to see change. Quality and equity will require prolonged action. So she didn't shout out Chris. Yeah, but very well worded, Katie. Right? I know. (laughs) It was. It is reposted on the IGTV video with the black chillerette, with that IGTV that that they posted. So anyone who watches that video, she is supporting that video. And I think that just speaks volumes right there. She doesn't have to say, Chris, you know, I can't believe, like, kind of like what McKenna said, like, Chris, I'm so disappointed. You know, she was very much like she singled him out. Katie did not, but she did post that video. So basically she did. (laughs) Basically she did. Oh, yeah. There's different levels to these responses. Some people are like, hashtag fire Chris Harrison. And then it goes all the way to, you know, general things about race. I saw Tulsi Vaughn posted just like a tribute to Rachel Lindsay, which is like a subtle way of supporting this. It's always interesting to watch what various responses are going to be. But the Black Charlottes and... Hey, Mocha, Taylor are doing so much like emotional labor on this, and everybody should like save all their posts. They've posted like their Venmos and stuff, etc. Which we should be paying these people for doing the free, really difficult emotional labor. And I really am hoping that the white players, the ex white players, are going to step up, and so that we don't have to. I mean, that's everyone who I saw was posting at first were the were the black players. Yep. And they shouldn't have to be doing this. Like the white players should be calling this out. 100%. I agree with you. Yeah, I was happy to see, you know, Kit and Katie. And there were some other white players. I'm, I'm trying to remember who they were. Oh, I'm Kendall. Kendall made a video, yep. which I really appreciated. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely coming yep. and, out. Um, There's going to be more, I'm sure. Olivia Caridi as yes. well. Yes. Yeah, Olivia's usually always vocal about that. So, yeah. Yeah. Katie Post is interesting, though. She's she's definitely establishing herself on which side of this argument she falls. She's not being silent. She's saying, right. this is where I'm at. There's no language in it that's like, fuck The Bachelor, fuck Chris Harrison. No. <laughs> no, no. no. I think she may still be The Bachelorette. We'll see. I mean, she'll be amazing. It's just, I don't know. I really would love to see more POC leads. And we have so many wonderful POC women in that season so many great women i mean michelle my god i could i could talk hours about michelle i I just adore her yeah she'd be wonderful she's she's a fantastic player too she does like some real good preseason work what she did with that maya angelou quote which she very obviously saw that in his twitter and was like i'm gonna use this on him in game (laughs) really an astute player and i'd be very curious to see what she could do as bachelorette how she would govern over a season I think she'd be fantastic. Well, you guys, is there anything you want to add to our conversation? Anything that you want to talk about your podcast in general? Uh, Any special projects you're working on that you want to share? Anything at all about the show before we wrap up? You can uh, find us on Instagram at Game of Roses Pod. Check out our podcast. If you like The Bachelor, what we kind of do on our show is give you a new way to watch it that is an enhanced version. And once you start listening to our podcast, once you start checking out our Instagram, we have a book coming out next year all about like strategies and stuff and how to win the show, basically. Love once it. you start having this information presented to you, you cannot watch the show in the same way again. And I think, hopefully, it enhances how you experience it. It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. Once once you go there, you can't go back. It's you know, you've fallen in the pit and you're not getting you're not getting out. So I cannot thank you both enough. This was incredible, so eye opening. I learned so much. My listeners are going to love this. But you guys are doing great work. Keep it up. Please keep us you know, posted on everything you always do. I always go to you guys to know, you know, what the latest is and, and uh, you're just, you're on top of it. And I appreciate that. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for having us on. This was a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Always very fun to talk about this stuff with people who know so much about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. After you've done the hyper binge, it's like there aren't a lot of people left on planet Earth that you can have these conversations with. <laughs> it's so true. And when you guys go through the Bachelorettes, I'd love to chat with you again and, and get your feedback on that, too, because it's got to be a different world, you know, watching all the Bachelors and then watching all the Bachelorettes. So that'll yeah. be really interesting to hear as well. Yeah, you guys, please keep in touch. 
I adore you both. I love what you're doing and uh, so glad we were able to connect, thankfully, through Instagram. So got to love Instagram for that. <laughs> Absolutely. We are the unreasonable people who use social media. (laughs) (laughs) We live on it. Well, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Please go follow them. Please go listen to their wonderful podcast. And uh, always stay safe, but remember to always stay cozy. Till next time, bye. 